1: Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linske. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello, Max. What have you got for us this week on the show? This week on the show is Adi Cornish. Adi Cornish is a name you both know. It's a name many of our listeners know because for 10 years, Adi was the host of All Things Considered on NPR. Before that, she was a reporter for NPR. Before that, she was a reporter in Boston. I've wanted to have her on for a very, very long time. And I will tell you guys, she's been reluctant. She has said no. And then she finally uh, said yes. And it's because I think, uh, well, I think she's in a different place, but also she's literally in a different place. She now works for CNN. She left earlier this year to make a show for CNN Plus. You guys remember CNN Plus? Mm Mm-hmm. Briefly. Briefly. So brief, in fact, that she never got to make that show. CNN Plus was canceled before she made her show, but she's been appearing on CNN. And what she's really been doing is working on a new podcast. It's called The Assignment. It launches tomorrow, Thursday, November 17th. And on the show, she is talking to people sort of behind the headlines. So it's not some big celebrity interview show. She's talking to real people about real and very thorny issues and she's having long conversations with them, the kind of conversations I would argue that uh, she couldn't totally have on NPR. So we talked about that change and we talked about leaving NPR and we talked about what it's like to take a job with a streaming service that doesn't exist by the time you're going to do the job you're going to do for the streaming service. We talked about all of it and uh, she was very, uh, very candid, I will say.
0: You see how uh, Max drops the show description there? So clean and seamless, Evan. That is an energy me and you need to bring into our lives. <laughs> I'm going to study this one.
1: <laughs> it, you guys, it took me 512 episodes, but I figured out how to do the intro.
0: <laughs> I love it. I uh, look forward to this one. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make this show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox.
1: And now here's Max with Audie Cornish. Hi, Adi. (laughs)
2: Hi, Max. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm great. (laughs) I'm legitimately great. I am happy to be doing this.
2: I am too. As a longtime listener, I am very, very, very happy that you asked me.
1: Well, don't don't act like I just asked you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, you had such guests on, especially in that first year or two, people that I just so admired and I thought... It's a little bit like when you read a memoir and you're like, I'm not ready to write a memoir. (laughs) Like, I haven't lived (laughs) enough life. Um, Narrator, she's now lived enough life. So I did feel comfortable (laughs) saying yes now. But for a time, I think I I still feel so much like a student of journalism. And, yeah, I just I wanted to learn more than I thought I could teach.
1: That's why you feel like you're ready now is now you are a master.
2: I mean, I've been through it. Okay, it's been a year. So (laughs) I I've learned that I know more than I think, and I've learned that um my skills are transferable, all of these things that i you know it sounds really silly, but when you're feeling insecure, like that's what your brain is telling you like you're not good enough at this, you don't know enough about this you like there are other people doing better, more important work more skillfully than you. Who do you think you are? That's like what your darkest voice will tell you, and so I just think. I'm out of it right now. I'm embracing the reality of my situation and, like, what I bring to it, which is, like, some good stuff, as it turns out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. How did you quiet that voice?
2: It turns out the media did for me, I think. (laughs) Like, when I left NPR, people were like, oh, my goodness clutch these pearls, <laughs> Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, there was an attention paid to my career that I had wildly was surprised by. And, you know, my therapist is like, see, <laughs> she's <laughs> like, okay, let's walk through it. This is the, uh, evidence. Shout out to Amy. And, um, I had to be like, OK, maybe she's right. Like maybe if someone writes an article and then writes popular NPR host, they're using that. I know that as a writer, as a shorthand for something everybody knows. <laughs> and so I had to like apply the own my own rules. If I was writing this story about me, what would I say? And it, it just sort of helped me get a grip.
1: So you had to leave this place that you'd been for 17 years to know your worth. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're saying?
2: Um, how do I put this delicately? It is not unusual for people to come up in that system and feel the shadow of its legacy. It's a really powerful, amazing brand that people have a deep connection with. And your heroes walk the halls. You know, when I first took over at Weekend Edition... Leigh Hansen had been there for more than 35 years. I was going to be the third host of that show. And when they asked me to take over at All Things Considered, Robert Siegel called me up personally to say, you know, hey, kid, I hope you're really going to consider taking this job. He'd been doing the job for more than 35 years. So the reputation is walking around talking to you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, Susan Stamberg's in the elevator, and her voice is in the elevator. They had her record the numbers, you know? So it's like, seventh floor, you know, like, cafeteria. But then she'll <laughs> be in the elevator with you.
1: <laughs> right. It's like the actual, like, uh voice of God standing next to you.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so it never occurred to me that I was becoming that until I started to meet people who were interns. And so for them, if you're 22, you could plausibly walk up to me and say, I've been listening to you (laughs) ever since I was a little kid. And even though I would be offended because at the time, you know, I would have been like 35, um, I suddenly had to be like, oh, oh, okay. Like, I get it, you
1: know. Yeah, was there a moment at which you felt like I'm walking around with all these like voices of God around me. I need to play that role for other people.
2: No, no, I I understand what you're asking, but I didn't think of it in that way. I was more cognizant of being a woman of color in the position I was in and being the age I was because, you know, nobody was writing about me when I first started hosting the show. And I was in my early 30s. You know, it was like the youngest like host of the show ever. But no one, you know, wrote these long pieces being like, the diversity at NPR is clearly, a, you know, like none of that happened for me, which is another reason why I was very shocked when I left and it made a deal. Because to me, I had entered very quietly and just started doing my work. I was far more cognizant of the representation Issue as that became more of a public dialogue and debate. And I also really embraced the idea that I should reach out to younger reporters and, and people who are just new to the company and say, hey, I am here for you. You know, and I did that with like Eric Deggins or Linda Holmes or Gene Denby. Like these people are my close friends now. But at the time I was just like, hey, do you need any tips about, you know, how to do the interview in the studio? Like, no one's going to tell you X. Like, I was trying to give people the help that I didn't get. And that's the way I thought about it.
1: How else did that manifest other than a first-day email?
2: Uh, Well, needless to say, I'm a talker. (laughs) (laughs) I had an open-door policy. I absolutely follow up with people that I'm mentoring. And uh, I'm aware that mentoring is a social action. And that's why it doesn't always happen for people who don't look like or kind of fit the image at a company typically. Like no one is going to, you know, as I used to watch happen, like take me to a baseball game. That was not an offer I got as I saw it being offered elsewhere. So I just make it a point, you know, I don't drink coffee, so I don't even pretend to drink coffee. I'm just like, hey, let's go and talk. Like, hey, come in and chat with me for a while. What's going on, you know, with your new co-host? What's going on with your editor? Have you heard of this person? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect you with this other person who I think would be interesting. Like, I really think that's important to young careers. And I think it's really important when you come to a new place. And I think um, newsrooms are really shitty at it. Like, they just make it really hard for people to, I don't know, in those first couple of months to find their place. And so those informal systems end up doing it.
1: Is that work that you can get better at?
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: What does that look like?
2: Well, the first couple of years you do it, you probably talk too much. And <laughs> not and you don't listen enough, you know? And I think I learned to be like, okay, you tell me what you think you need. Like one of my favorite questions to ask people, not in an interview setting, although it's helpful sometimes, is, okay, what do you perceive the problem to be? hmm like, you're coming in here saying you have a problem, so outline for me what it is. Not your unhappy spiel you give at the bar, but is is your problem a person? Is your problem a place and position? Is your problem an issue? Like, let's just let's just try and break it down piece by piece, and then you walk me through it. Because a lot of times they either know what they want to do, but they want permission to do it because they feel guilt, shame, confusion, or just kind of like, should I want this? Is it okay for me to want this? And they kind of want someone to be like, yeah, go for it. And other times they just want to vent, you know, and they have nowhere else to go and they want to do it in a place that is not going to have consequence for them. So I can do that.
1: Even in the position that you were in at NPR?
2: I mean, I like talking to people. They're like, you know how Forrest Gump is sitting on the bench? Like, I could do that. Like, I just—I want to talk to people. I like hearing what's going on with people. I'm overly attuned to people's emotions. And I don't mean that in a way, like, you know, when you're dating someone and they're like, I'm an empath. Like, it's not that. It's like—and this gets me in trouble in my regular life. I'm, like, too attuned— to facial expressions and changes in tone of voice and all of these things that signal which direction is the conversation going, how is the person feeling. And I do have friends, very close friends, over the years who have said to me, like, okay, stop interviewing me when we're just talking on the phone.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about being a therapist?
2: No, I need too much therapy to be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) I also edit people in my head which I'm sure you can't do as a therapist. Like to me, people are talking.
1: Oh, I feel like therapists must do that all the time.
2: No, no, but I have edit points. Like I can see it. Uh huh. You know, in my mental Pro Tools,
1: it's like, like you're you're just, you're like literally cutting people. Yeah, tail. I'm like,
2: and pause for breath, and now we're back. <laughs> like, like okay, now they've gotten to the point. Okay, let's. We're gonna circle it around. We're gonna make sure that comes up sooner. <laughs> And then, like, I'm I'm doing all that while people are talking. It's kind of terrible.
1: Now I'm just thinking about how you're editing me, you know?
2: You know, you're a hard edit. I've edited you.
1: No, that's true. You,
2: you've been on all that's things. It's true. You've actually done that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not that you're hard edit. Let me take that back. You are very, very thoughtful. And we can hear you thinking in real time, which is honestly awesome. For audio people, because this is, again, it's like a signifier of authenticity and kind of makes you feel like you're very in the moment. And the thing we have to do with people like you is make sure that we don't edit out your thinking, right? That we don't be like, oh, that's a pause. And so it's got to go away. Some people, when they're very early in their careers and they're starting to edit as producers, they they try and clean things up. And I'm like, don't clean people up. Their pauses and their silence is as, as valuable is what they say.
1: Hmm. I'm now realizing, I think this is the first time I've ever interviewed someone who's interviewed me. (laughs) Yeah. That's happened to me a couple times in the last year, and I'm like, uh. Yeah, I I can imagine. That's a strange thing. Yeah.
2: It's like uh, the meme with the Spider-Mans pointing at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Do the kids still talk about memes? I never know what's safe to reference anymore.
1: I've stopped um, even pretending to know what the kids might be talking about.
2: Oh, I had a... I, we One of the upcoming podcast episodes involves sex workers, and one of them referenced um, Chatterbait. And I was like, oh, is that like where different people come on screen? And, you know, the producers are like, that's chat roulette, stop talking. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really feeling my age right now. <laughs> totally.
1: I have a... Um, I have some colleagues who make like pop culture podcasts and not infrequently they come and ask me like, hey, do you know this person or like what this is? And at some point I realized that I was like a litmus test <gasps> for whether they had to explain it to old people.
2: It's a moment. It's a moment.
1: <laughs> it was like the the old man line. You know, it was just like, does he know what that is? Because if he doesn't, I guess we have to maybe explain
2: it. (laughs) It's real. You're the median. I mean, um, I don't know. I feel like we're roughly the same age. We're sort of like in between Gen X and elder millennial. We don't want to claim either.
1: Totally. Yeah.
2: And it is a very, no one believes us, but it is a distinct couple of years of like, I know what a beeper is.
1: (laughs) I have a theory about this. Tell me. Give it to me. My theory is that it's all about technology.
2: It is. It is completely bracketed by tech.
1: It is that we were out of our educational years before the internet was completely ubiquitous in our lives. Yeah. But it was around, like when I was in college, I would go to the library and log on to the computer because you were like, Alta Vista
2: time. Totally. They're just like, <laughs> I
1: wonder if I got in? Yeah. <laughs> like an internet mail.
2: I know. I know. And I think for younger people, they think that is just like, you are aged, instead of really understanding that this is such a rapid shift. It means in my lifetime as a relatively young person, I mean, just to give an example, podcasting is like a minute old, okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? But you talk to <laughs> you talk to some young producers and they're like, "Well, back in the day." I'm like, "Oh, you mean 2008?"
1: Yeah. I mean I think that that sometimes it's like back in the day and it's like 2018. I just want to um <laughs> a- acknowledge quickly. Yeah. One is uh we are aged. No. Yes. No. Yes.
2: No, here here let me tell you why. I do think we are in a unique Position. I genuinely believe that, right? It means that you. you Yeah, I was joking about the beeper, right? Yeah. But a think of the think of the difference in technology (laughs) from the beeper and the smartphone. It also means we have enjoyed almost every stage of social media, including clearly its pending collapse. You know, Friendster had its moment. I got all my roommates and my (laughs) apartments on Craigslist, like. Those were fun, interesting moments of this thing that we were all engaging in, which was about communication and connection. This is when we bought into the idea of it. And, you know, now that we're much more clear-eyed, now that we're in the point where we're like, oh, wait, oh so I'm the product? Oh, wait, so you're not taking care of me? This isn't like a safe space for me to connect with other people, but possibly a place for me to plot, to overthrow things. We're like, oh, okay, wait a second. <laughs> Vibe shift, and I think we're all realizing that it's not what we thought. But, like, we were there for that, and I think it'll help inform what the next version of it can be.
1: Wow, that... Did I just detect optimism?
2: <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not buying stock in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> there, There's a certain stock play that I'm going to hit pause on. Uh, but... I'm just saying that, like, we know things. There's something to be said for having a foot in each generation.
0: Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a
1: Do you think of yourself as an optimistic person?
2: Oh, um, this is going to sound corny, but now that I have kids, I am. And uh, listen, I think if you came up in the 90s and even the early aughts of sort of like snark infused gawker age bloggism, there was a certain kind of Cynicism and irony that was like really important to your personality. In fact, in some cases, it was a personality. And now I love some of the optimism I see, like in Gen Z, I love the earnestness. I love that people are like, no, it's okay to take something seriously. It's okay to, like, tell your friends you love them. (laughs) It's okay to give flowers. You know, I love that phrase, like, giving people their flowers. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. That's great. Because I don't know if we got anything for all of our nastiness. I I don't know if the points scored during those years really added up to much. And I'm kind of glad to see the back of it. So in a way, yes, I've become more optimistic. Just to give an example, there is a certain optimism coming out of this midterm election, not because I'm partisan or for partisan reasons, but because having people so explicitly tell voters, I'm casting doubt on the election. And not just casting doubt, I don't believe in the count, right, or the fact of the count, I want to deregister all of you so we can wipe the rolls and start again, right? Or one of my favorite quotes was, uh, if I win here, another Democrat will never win in this state again. Or there hasn't been a valid election since 2006. There's all of these, like, these statements that really undercut what it means to be the U.S. democracy. And I am optimistic that those messages specifically were turned away by voters, that plenty of people said, you know, maybe not. Maybe you should take it down a notch. <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't be at the levers of certification going down the road. I think that's an inflection point. I think that's a significant moment to embrace. Um, and it doesn't have to be the kind of typical red-blue skin shirts like rah-rah it it needs to be an acknowledgment that the voters hear people when they speak, they believe them, and that they can look those same politicians in the eye and say, not today. No, thanks.
1: Do you think how you look at this moment would have been different six, seven, eight years ago?
2: Yeah, of course, you know, and, and I'll um, – you have to be aware of that, though, because as journalists, we can get really cynical and we can get really – pessimistic. We can get really pessimistic because we don't always see the best of people. It's that kind of job.
1: How did that manifest as the host of All Things Considered? Because that's a distinct job even in our ecosystem.
2: It is. Oh, I miss it. It's such a great job. It's such a great job. Because you can start the hour talking hard politics and you can end the hour getting into the meat of somebody's new album. You can be in the middle of the hour talking to some, you know, hardware store owner that's like sold their last paper bag or whatever, um, or be on the phone with someone who has had a deep, deep loss in their life. You can do all of that in a day. I don't think people understand just how incredible that is, how unusual that is, and how that has not translated into other mediums. So I think the reservoirs of optimism I did have in that job came from the fact that I could uh, touch on a lot of parts of our lives in a day, right? Like you can draw from that.
1: Did you feel like you could be yourself in that job?
2: No, it's not that kind of job. Um The reason why I'm pausing is because maybe I could. Like, there's this weird thing where I'm like, people clearly cared that I was on the show, and there are so many hosts, and yet people thought that I had a voice that they would miss, that there was some sort of distinction there. So something must have came out. I often think of it as, like, being on Law & Order, you know? (laughs) It's like, you come to know certain cops and certain prosecutors, and, like... You know that Donnie might have had an alcohol problem back in the day. But now he's just making quips over a body, you know, like he's not telling you about his whole life. And I, I still like that analogy.
1: Well, what, what was the part of you that you think was able to come through that people connected?
2: Certainly story selection is very meaningful at that table. NPR at its heart as a network in a way is just extremely well curated. So sometimes I think I could lift stories up that might have fallen. That I knew there was an audience out there that wanted to hear it. I just had to get it past the table. And most journalists in any newsroom know that there's sort of a culture to whatever place you're at. And sometimes you have to learn to speak the language. And for years, I just couldn't. I couldn't get pitches through because, like, I couldn't say it in the way that people would respond to. And then I kind of hit on a formula and and was off to the races from there.
1: What was the formula?
2: Oh, I will attribute this directly to Alex Bloomberg, who was the uh, founder of Gimlet. I think it's something like, I want to do a story about X, what's interesting is Y, and we should talk to Z. Hmm. And I know that sounds really simple, but lots of people do not pitch like that. You know, they kind of come to the table and they're like, I want to do a story about how, like, Beyonce has connected. And you're just like, where is this going?
1: You know what (laughs) I mean? Or
2: just sort of like, homelessness seems bad. It's like okay, you're welcome to town. You know, you're not the first person to do this story. And this is where it's important about what you bring to something. And I think I learned very quickly that there there were things that I could bring to the table that Robert Siegel wasn't going to, right? Or Melissa Block or whoever, not because they couldn't, but because we are different people. <laughs> you know, like it, we're going to have different interests.
1: What was the stuff that you were bringing?
2: First of all, music was a huge thing. The Tiny Desk concert had not exploded the way it did when I first came on. And really simple pitches to me were a big push. You know, I remember interviewing Diplo. um, And if you listen to that intro now, you would never hear that intro at NPR. It was very just like Diplo. Diplo. A DJ who has worked with many artists, including this person and that person. It's like, it's 40 seconds of me making the case to my boss, who at the time used to say that he, he didn't like music interviews at all because he thought people who didn't care about that particular kind of music would automatically tune out.
1: One of those situations where you're talking to millions of people and also just one person.
2: But it's also like, that's dumb. That's a dumb way to think of it. You know, the reason why we talk to artists is because they help us understand our own emotions and how we interpret them. They help us understand zeitgeist. They they pull from the atmosphere and explore ideas. And you can get that from a movie director and you can get that from a musician. But you have to ask and you have to treat it with the same seriousness and analytical power that you do some piece of policy. And I think that was not something people felt as strongly as I felt it. And it's why I had such kinship with, like, Linda Holmes and and Glenn Weldon and all those folks, like, at Pop Culture Happy Hour. I begged them to be on their show because I was like, oh, you get it. Like, you're talking about this stuff because it matters. And I know that seems minor now in this age of pop culture criticism that is so literate, but we weren't doing it on air.
1: Can you do those interviews and bring that same energy that you do to any other interview without bringing more of yourself.
2: The reason why I don't I can't answer this question for you is it's very hard for me to hear myself, like hear what I'm bringing to something. There is a remove I can place that that is very analytical. That is like here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's where the guest said this. I really think we need to draw out this idea I can diagram it, but I can't for the life of me tell you what I bring to it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really know what that means. You have to tell me what you're hearing while you're asking this question.
1: Well, I can do that. So I just listened to the first episode of your podcast, which comes out Thursday, the day after this airs. And there are multiple moments in this episode in which you're interviewing activist parents who became school board members in which you follow up over and over again to try and clarify language and understand why they're making linguistic choices that they're making, which feels both to me like excellent journalism. And also it is a desire on your part to not let people off the hook in a way that I've experienced you, whether or not there are microphones. It didn't feel like someone doing it. It felt like you doing it.
2: I really appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that deeply. Real people deserve empathy and, and their humanity understood and embraced. And That means listening, and it means sometimes not interrupting with your own idea and thought to prove a point. There is a time and place for that, absolutely, but not always, and not in the thing I'm necessarily trying to do, and it's uncomfortable because I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism for it. Like, she didn't press these people enough. Why did she platform these people and not that people? It's in, it's this tension is built into the show, right? I took this challenge on myself. Part of the reason why I did is because I think there is journalism inherent in an interview. Like the interview itself should be considered a piece of journalism. It isn't always. Sometimes it's, it's like the vibe is a little window dressing or that it's personality driven. And I don't subscribe to that. I think that it has its own journalism. It's my journalism. And so I know in this day and age in which people manipulate language, language matters. Why are you choosing the words you are to say what you're doing? They signal things. They signal multiple communities at once. And um, getting underneath that is, is, I think, important. It's valuable. It's funny, now that you're pointing out, I'm, th- I'm, like, thinking about other times I did it in the other episodes. I think I did the same thing when we talked to these OnlyFans creators. It's going to be in an upcoming episode. I spent some time being like, are you doing sex work? Like, is this considered sex work, what you're doing? Right? <laughs> like, what's the difference? Um, what you're hearing there is, number one, I do think there's value in being precise. I don't want to put words in people's mouths. And I don't want to characterize people in a way that does not feel comfortable to them. I don't feel comfortable when it happens to me. And I want... I'm not into a gotcha situation. Like, I believe people are fully capable of defending their ideas. And if their ideas are really bad, will they fall apart under scrutiny? Yeah, they might. But, like, give them the chance.
1: I think... Maybe I am not being direct in my question. Give it to me. Well, I'm really curious about why you left NPR.
2: Oh, why didn't you just ask that?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that what I was hinting around at was some theory I have that part of the reason that you left was that you couldn't... Fully be yourself in that job. Right. That is the theory I'm testing and not being direct about. So let me say, I'm curious about why you left NPR. Was it because you couldn't fully be yourself in that job? In those interviews, in those moments?
2: I am fully myself in my interviews. No one is ever standing over my shoulder saying, like, what, what, what? It is a very, very curated and edited environment and, and it made me uh, very mercenary. So I would know, okay, we need to talk about this. The first question needs to be this. The last question needs to be this. The two things in between can be this issue and that issue. Then we need two questions that need to be um, challenging. And then that's all we got because we got to cut this by 4 o'clock. And I became probably a little too good at that.
1: That was certainly the experience I had being interviewed by you for it.
2: Right? I gave you the Miranda rights. We Uh started off and I was like, da-da-da-da-da. And then we did it. I let you do some retakes. And then I was like, great, great, great. Thank you.
1: Yeah. See you around.
2: And then I went off to an interview like about Syria or something. You know, like you just have too many interviews in a day to live in a moment and stay in a moment.
1: So why did you leave?
2: There's a lot of reasons. But if I'm being honest with myself... I think I had started to leave about two years earlier than people realized, meaning I had started to find new ways to do my job.
1: You quiet quit?
2: <laughs> I, I didn't quiet quit. If anything, I did the opposite. I did more work. I was like, I'd like to start doing live events for you guys. And they're like, <laughs> we don't really want this, but thanks. You know, like, <laughs> I'd, I'd be like, can I be on that podcast? And they'd be like, um, well, we're not going to pay you more, but thanks. Like, I just kept doing stuff that they were only semi interested in me doing and i would often hear well you have all things considered why can't you do this stuff there and i heard that so much and i I really started to get annoyed by it because i thought like well you know why Mm -hmm. you know it's the clock the time the volume the pressure uh i can do more I can do more than you guys want me to do. I can do more than is available to me to do here. And I think the final straw is when I was um, asking about doing some kind of program and someone was like, well, maybe you should just kind of like tape something in a kind of like pilot just so we can see what you can do. And I had been doing it for like a while. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, you know, like... <laughs> I'm humble, but this is ridiculous. (laughs) This is ridiculous. Like I I, there's no more for me to show. And I don't say that to speak out of turn, but because I had been there since I was an intern, you know, that sense that like I had to prove things to people was still kind of always there. Um, And so I think I was just looking for an opportunity to grow. That's all it was. I don't know. It shocked everyone. I don't know why. But there's a lot of things, but in the end, maybe it's really just one or two things. It's like, am I growing? Am I learning? If I'm not, what do I do next?
1: Do you have a theory about why it shocked people?
2: Yeah, my theory is that several hosts had left. And in as we know in journalism speak, three makes a trend. There was a part of the awakening, as I call it, <laughs> like the racial reckoning that was going on in newsrooms, was hitting public media newsrooms really hard at stations, but the national media does not cover us, does not cover public media. And uh, NPR listeners are very, it's a community. They're really attached to you and your voice. You know what I mean? They like go to bed hearing your voice and you really don't hear anyone else's voice in fidelity like this, except like a spouse or your kid. And it just you just feel very close to people. And yeah, I think it's just like one of those news stories that gets picked up because there's a bunch of little things going on at once and you've got enough to write a whole story. But I very quickly stopped thinking it was about me. You know, I had a moment where I was like, wait, is this about me? And then I would read the stories. And I was like, oh, this is not about me, right? <laughs> this, is, this is about ideas people have about, like, diversity in news. This is ideas people have about NPR, what it's doing right, what it's doing wrong, what people think about podcasting, what all these baby, you know, producers and reporters want to say um, to the bosses. This is a catalyst for a conversation. And my job is to not step on and snuff that out. My job is to let it happen you know, so that some of these things can be aired out and talked about. Whether or not they always pertain to me it <laughs> was, you know, not necessarily the case. But that that's how
1: I thought about it. What does that look like, to not step on it?
2: It means doing kind of a goofball Twitter thread that <laughs> speaks to multiple audiences at once, right? Like, just to break something down for media people. When you do what I did, it's effective because, number one... People are always writing stories about what black people tweet. (laughs) It's like a genre of journalism, (laughs) I think. So I was like, check that box. Uh, Number two, you know, I I managed to stick in enough GIFs (laughs) before they became uncool that people were sort of amused by that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I made sure to say the most pointed things using that visual language because I didn't want to be quoted. In ways that I didn't think would be smartly discussed. So the actual statements in the thread are quite neutral. The tone conveyed by the imagery says something else. It speaks to multiple audiences and accomplishes what I want, which is to say my piece without saying that's invalidating other people's experiences. Right. I I've always hated when people kind of are like, well, that didn't happen to me. It's like, girl, who cares what didn't happen to you? People are talking about a broader issue here. And I I I didn't want to do that. Let people talk about the broader issue.
1: So the reason that you left you Audi was that you felt like you had lost the ability to grow. That feeling is that something you just kind of wake up one day and recognize?
2: It happens to me all the time. People don't understand that's why I stayed there so long because I changed jobs every two years. It was like I took the job in Nashville, right? Like I didn't even start in D.C. with everyone else. And it was like a little baby reporter doing New Orleans stuff. And then I was covering a, a presidential campaign. And then I was covering Congress. And then after Congress, I got turned down for a promotion for a title change. So I applied to be a host. I didn't know I was going to get it, but my job changed. Like, every two to three years, there, were, there felt like a huge challenge that I had to figure out, and that was enough to keep me occupied for a while. And then I would, like, kind of be like, "Ah, oh, this feels kind of boring now. Mm-hmm. I want to do something else. And I start nibbling around at the edges and, and trying to um, find my way to something else. And I absolutely thought that that's what I was doing here. I thought I was so slick. I was like, I'm just going to leave over the
1: holidays.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start this new job at this streaming channel. Who's going to see it?
1: Can you articulate, A, how you recognize your board, and then, B, how you make that move? Is that like a form of negotiation? Are you good at that? How do you do that?
2: I've never been very good at, like, beats, which is kind of what happens to you as a journalist. You get to a beat, and if you're pretty good at it, people kind of want you to do that forever. But then, to me, I'm like, oh, now you got to be, like, friends with people? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you got to, like, get to know sources and then, like, text them and have coffee with them. Like, I don't want any of that. And I would want to explore something else. I felt so uniquely match to that job that allowed me to chase every ball of yarn and not be punished for it. Because if I cover politics for a really long time, I get bored and I want to do something else. And then I I interview 15 musicians in a row and I get sick of them showing up to, to interviews late and I want to do something else. And then, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just an omnivore in terms of information and story. And, um... I think I just know myself when I'm like, I, I just can't keep doing blah, blah. And I start to say that until my friends are like, you're irritating. What's your next plan?
1: All right. That's good advice. If you start complaining all the time, that means you're bored.
2: Some people, you know what? Uh, Linda Holmes said this, like like marinating yeah. in your juices, so to speak. You can get pickled. Mm-hmm. I think some of us get pickled. We're, like, we're in there with our friends, marinating in our misery and enjoying our gossing, and no one looks up and says, whoa, should we actually just not be here? Like, is that an okay thing to say? And maybe more people said it during the pandemic because you just, like, had time to think, you know, and you had time out of the jar. I don't know how much longer I can take that metaphor, but I just really (laughs) feel like.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going to double down on it. (laughs) Okay. If you marinate, complain about where you're at, you can get pickled. And then you can realize that's what you're doing. You can make a huge move. You can shift to a whole new medium. You can sign <laughs> up for a big, <laughs> ambitious service with a worldwide global media brand. And before it starts, it can end. And you know what you find yourself in?
2: Yeah. A, a pickle. <laughs> well played. Um, remember at the start of this interview when you said you were aged? <laughs> we, ju- we just confirmed. Uh, trust but verify. <laughs> we have verified there. Listen, I'm not afraid to talk about that experience because I I feel deeply that the drive to innovate should not be mocked, and especially in an industry that people complain about constantly. Right. Like people go online and they're just like, cable news is this cable news does that the journalism bat rap rap. And then when people are like, hey, let's try and make something where we are kind of interested in doing it differently. What if we could make a show where we weren't spending every second thinking about like ratings or something? What would that look like? Mm -hmm. And I was intrigued by that. I also had watched podcasting, like, kind of pass me by at my old job. I really felt like the thing people, you know, think about with podcasting is like, oh, my God, like, I got so big and popular and money and blah, blah, blah. No, for the rest of us, there was a craft thing that said, oh, what is it like to make radio that's uh, an on-demand product that's not a story where you have to repeat something every two minutes and 13 seconds because someone might just be tuning in and so they missed it. There were lots of little ticks and, and, and parts of the work that were really just about the medium, and Serial in particular really revealed how you could be unshackled from that and how you could tell a story in a way that the audience could do a little bit of work too. And I really wanted to try something new. You know, I'm never going to feel bad about that,
1: ever. How did it feel when CNN Plus got canceled?
2: I think it's one of those things where when something happens so publicly, you do have this moment of, is there something wrong with me? You know what I mean? Like, like I, like somehow this is about me. And one really good thing about that experience is it was zero about me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it was not about a single person who worked on the project. And I can say that with confidence. That's what the people who made the decision said publicly. It was not about us. And what none of us understood at the time was that that there was going to be this real shift in what it meant to be successful in streaming in general. And that question went on to rock Netflix and Disney and You know, people have questions about the future of Peacock and Paramount Plus. Across the board, the sort of uh, the Wall Street view of these companies has greatly diminished. And honestly, I feel like there's a couple of media writers who need to write a coda to that story, because at the time it was treated as unique, singular mistake of hubris by like one or two executives or something, when instead. It was the canary in the coal mine of a major both strategy shift and fundamental rethinking of that industry that we are still experiencing right now. So did I have a couple weeks where I was like, whoa, it's me. Yes. And then I really started reading the papers, you know. I really started reading the articles. And I was like, oh, something's going on here that people aren't understanding. And that has now even extended in a way to big tech itself. Mm -hmm right, the whole premise of we're going to give you a bunch of money, make your products kind of cheaply just to get people into it. It's OK if you're not really making any money. <laughs> like, Wall Street's like, yeah, no, you should make money now. <laughs> and there's a lot of there's a big recalibration going on, you know, and and so now I just feel like I'm part of a very interesting story that one day people will be writing about at some like Harvard Business School case study. And I don't feel like it's a story of, remember the time that Audie Cornish tried to leave NPR? What an idiot. I don't think it's that
1: story. (laughs) So you don't have any regrets?
2: I don't have regrets about leaving. I, I just don't. The world has opened up to me in such an amazing way. I have met and talked to so many amazing producers across the industry who I never would have gotten to talk to if I was squirreled away in my old job. And you know this, like, I would call people up and just be like, what should I do with my life? You know, like, I'm not subtle about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had those conversations.
2: Yeah. And you you were amazing, you know, like, you were amazing in those conversations. And Since then, I've even gotten in touch with old producers who are now consultants, who are now chiefs of podcasting at this company and that company. You know, I went from being like, oh, podcasting, I don't think I I guess I'm kind of locked out of that to feeling like I know everyone Hmm. that there is to know who's doing skilled, interesting, fun work, who's going through the same struggles I am, you know, which is what happens when you leave the nest, a nest that has infrastructure and uh, a culture and uh, a writing style or a cutting style or whatever it is. And you strike out on your own and you go to places that don't have any of that <laughs> and think that you can do your job in a closet. We're all going through that. Like there are many conversations going on right now, I think, at podcasting companies, uh, especially ones of a certain skill set that are really like, whoa, okay. <laughs> We're out here on our own trying to figure this out. And these legacy media companies don't have the answers. They thought we had the answers. So it's been a real growing period. And I think I've learned, I've learned a tremendous amount.
1: I have um, heard you talk about your approach to interviewing before and describing a sort of North Star, like one question you're trying to answer, one idea you're trying to get at. So I tried to do it with this one. What did you come up with? Well, I've got it right here in front of me, and it's, what does this moment feel like for her, given this huge move you had made, the way it's gone since you're on the eve of launching this podcast that you've been working on for a long time? Do you have a word to sum that up? Can you answer my North Star question of um, where are you at in this very moment?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, Max, I'm going to be honest with you. It has been a hard year. It has been a hard year. There have been a lot of ups and downs. Very high highs, very low lows. And there were times where it, it did get in my head that somehow this was more public than I had planned. I'm used to my highs and lows, but not so many people cared or noticed. You know what I mean, like yeah. I don't know. I I know that I am happy, getting a chance to try. I've just been told no one too many times, probably, and I really am enjoying being told yes. I just am, you know, and even if it may appear on the outside that the company is going through a lot here. It is also going through a moment of change. Like there is some creativity afoot. There are things being made. And like that's exciting. When I'm a cynic, I'm like chaos is a ladder, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but in a moment like this, like yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to enjoy the moment. Let me have that, Max.
1: Oh, always. <laughs> I would never. I would never try and take that away.
2: Well, now I feel I'm like, am I too? Am I an optimist? Gross. Like, what happened here?
1: <laughs> well, I think you might be because I, think I the, might be. I think the show's optimistic. It's ambitious and it's optimistic.
2: Absolutely. When I was making it, and then when I told my friends what I was doing, they were like, "Oh, that's hard." Yeah. Why are you doing that? Um, and you know what? I am not going into this thinking. This needs to be a blockbuster podcast on the top 20 of the Tracky Pod whatever <laughs> list. I really just don't. You know what? I'm saying to myself, maybe I'm growing something. Maybe I'm taking people along with me, right? They're like, I'm not in this for the people who are going to listen to one episode and be like, oh, whatever. I'm in it for the people who want to be in it with me who also care about listening who also care about community and just the idea of community like we're going to make something together and that's going to take some time and in, in a few months or a year the assignment so to speak could change and that's awesome that's like the thing i wanted right is to not not feel like i had to fit into, like, existing kind of house. You know, I want something that'll grow with me.
1: Got to keep growing.
2: Yeah. Audie, thank you. Thank you so much. I love talking to you.
1: Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to our friends at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Audie Cornish. Her new podcast is called The Assignment. It's great. You can find it wherever you are listening to this show, which will be back next week. See you then.